Hello there. Come here, my little friend. Don't be afraid. Rest easy, son. You've had a busy day. You're fortunate to be all in one piece. But I think we better get indoors. The men in black are easily startled, but they'll soon be back, and in greater numbers. Alright, as you may have figured out, you have just been abducted onto the Renegade Files starship. Interstellar transportation for the stranded free thinker, with destinations in unsolved mysteries, paranormal events, and conspiracies old and new. I'm your captain, Lex Gordon, and today we take off from the Jungle Villa outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 16, The Allagash 4 Alien Abduction. Charlie Foltz and twins Jim and Jack Weiner were friends from college where they also had met Chuck Rack, an experienced outdoorsman and fisherman. In 1976, these four friends embarked on a canoeing and camping trip in the remote Maine North Woods. Their plan was to canoe, camp, and fish in the great outdoors, and supplement their provisions with the fish they would catch in the lakes and rivers of the Allagash Wilderness Waterway. Little did they know that this adventure would alter each of their lives and propel them into the hushed conversations and sacred legends of the UFO research community forever. While fishing one night, they saw a large object glowing above the trees and made the fateful decision to signal the craft with their flashlight. In minutes, the four fishermen ironically found themselves being reeled into the UFO through an opaque blue shaft of light and suddenly, they were the catch of the day. So come with me now to the remote wilderness of the Maine North Woods. Bring your tent, fishing pole, and your warmest sleeping bag, and together we will explore the curious case of the Allagash 4 Alien Abduction. The Allagash 4 Alien Abduction. The Allagash 4 Alien Abduction. Alien Abduction. Part 1. The Camping Trip In the 1970s, Charlie Foltz, Chuck Rack, and twins Jim and Jack Weiner became friends while attending the Massachusetts College of Art. In August of 1976, Chuck Rack, who was an experienced outdoorsman, suggested that the four men go on a camping and canoeing trip in the Allagash Wilderness Waterway. At this time, Chuck Rack was in his early 30s and the other men were in their late 20s. Rack had camped in the same area previously and he had also spent time on outdoor excursions in Alaska and other parts of the northern U.S. The Allagash Wilderness Waterway is a protected area that is part of the National Wild and Scenic River Systems. It comprises a 90-mile stretch of forests, rivers, and a rugged system of connected lakes and streams. This area is located in the northern central part of Maine, covers a good portion of the Maine North Woods, includes much of the Allagash River, and stretches up to the Canadian border. It is remote and uninhabited, and the few roads through the terrain are rough logging roads. The men were able to drive to a first destination where they camped for the night and set up their packing gear and canoes for their extended adventure. For the first few days, the men climbed Mount Katahdin, 
were flown deeper into the woods by a guide service and canoed from campsite to campsite, staying only one night at each as they made their way further into the wilderness. On Tuesday, August 23rd, they paddled to a campsite on what is called Mudbrook, where they ran into several other campers who were already at that location. They spent the evening cooking their meal and conversing around the fire with the other campers there. The next morning, they would head into an even more remote section of the woods where they would continue their wilderness excursion for several days. It was well into the night around the campfire with the other campers at Mudbrook when the group saw a strange light in the sky. Jim Weiner described it as looking like the flame inside of a pottery kiln, sort of undulating and glowing. Jim and a few of the men from the other group walked to a clearing away from the fire to get a better look at whatever it was they had seen. Through binoculars, Jim saw that the light was being emitted from some kind of structure or craft. It seemed to be silent and stationary. It looked to him to be a few miles away and only 200 or 300 feet above the treetops along a distant ridge. Jim said that the object remained for three or four minutes before, quote, extinguishing from the outside in. In the three or four minutes that the object was hovering, Jim was watching it through the binoculars. The other campers with him became disinterested and headed back to the campfire. Jim called for his friends, but no one came before the light vanished. Jim went back to the campsite very excited, but he found that no one else was at all interested in whatever the object had been, and no one even wanted to talk with him about it. The next morning, the four men said goodbye to the other campers and headed off on their adventure. They fished as they canoed the rivers and crossed the lakes to their next camping destinations, eating the fish they caught in order to save the rations they had packed in. They paddled through sections of the Allagash River and around islands that split it into smaller passages, but they kept mostly to the main river. And as they paddled, framed by evergreens on both sides and cold blue sky overhead, they must have thought, the first explorers who saw this country saw it just like us. I can imagine how they felt. Yeah, we beat it. Didn't we beat that? You don't beat it. You never beat the river. Two days later, the men paddled to Eagle Lake and eventually made their way to Smithbrook campsite on the eastern shore. They had been alone since leaving the only other campers they had ran into at Mudbrook and would be alone for the rest of their journey. Along the way to Eagle Lake, fishing had been less than productive and on the day they arrived and set up camp, they had yet to catch any fish at all. With their stores running low, they decided to fish the lake at night in hopes of catching enough fish for the next day or two. They set up their tents, stowed their gear, and worked to get their fishing tackle in good order as the sun set. In the growing dark, they loaded one canoe with their rods and tackle. Since it would be dark and the lake they were fishing on was large with various outcroppings of rocks and bluffs along the shorelines, they decided to build a large lakeside fire at their campsite so they could easily find their way back to it after fishing the dark lake. They built a very large fire because they wanted it to burn for long enough as to still be visible after at least a few hours of fishing. As all four men piled into one canoe and set out, Jim Weiner looked back and he would later recall that the fire was so large that he was concerned it may start a forest fire. 
Jim and Jack were in the center of the canoe with Charlie Folds in front and Chuck Rack in the back. The men paddled gently and tried to make as little noise as possible. They drifted and fished across the calm lake on the moonless clear night. When they were about a mile from shore, Chuck Rack noticed, quote, a large bright sphere of colored light hovering motionless and soundless about two to three hundred feet above the southeastern rim of the cove. Rack directed the other men's attention to the light and they all sat dumbfounded as they watched this large object floating in the clear sky. Charlie Fultz said he became so transfixed on the object he stopped paddling and just sat there watching it. Charlie said he could see, quote, a fluid pulsating over the face of the object as it changed color from red to green to yellow-white. I detected a gyroscopic motion as if there were pathways of energy flowing equatorially and longitudinally from pole to pole. They divided the sphere into four oscillating quadrants. Jim recognized the object as being identical to the one he had seen through the binoculars two nights before. Jack described the object as being as big as a two-story house and in the shape of a pulsating sphere. All men confirmed Rack's initial estimates that the object was motionless, silent, a mile or so away at the southern shore and between two and three hundred feet in the air. They spun the canoe around to face the object head-on so they could see it without turning their heads. They talked in hushed whispers about what it may be and what they should do. At this time, Jim suggested they signal the object with their flashlight, which I can confidently say after researching a fair number of UFO cases is almost never a good idea. However, Charlie Foltz, who had the flashlight, agreed with Jim and he flashed the Morse code signal for SOS toward the light in the sky. The craft seemed to respond instantly and it began to move over the black lake and toward the canoe. The men started to paddle furiously toward their large signal fire back at the campsite. As the object glided silently over the lake, growing ever closer to the paddling men, it emitted a blue beam of light down to the water's surface. The men doubled their paddling efforts. The ship overtook them. They were engulfed in the blue light, and the next thing they knew, they were all on the shore at the campsite looking up at the craft. Chuck Rack was sitting in the canoe where it was pulled up onto the bank, and the other men found themselves standing at various spots around the camp. They all watched the object extinguish in the same outside-in implosion manner that had been described by Jim when he had watched the similar or same object just days before. After the object vanished, it reappeared a few miles away and they watched it move slowly before departing vertically in an instant of rapid acceleration. All of the men were struck by the fact that their fire had already burned down to nothing but a few barely glowing coals, even though it was still burning high and brightly when they set out to paddle back to it less than 15 minutes ago. The remainder of their trip was relatively uneventful, and the only further encounter they had was with a park ranger to whom they relayed their UFO experience. Part 2. Analyzing the Event 
In this section, we're going to do two things. First, we'll go over a quick summary of the types of UFO experiences to determine exactly where the Allagash 4 incident lies in relation to other UFO events and reports. Secondly, we will go over the main investigation into this case, which was conducted by author and scientist Ray Fowler. Then, before my summary and conclusions, we'll learn a little bit more about who Ray Fowler is, his background, and the work he's done since the Allagash event. So, with regard to the basic types of UFO experiences, let's turn to our old friend, J. Allen Hynek. It was J. Allen Hynek who investigated the Socorro UFO sighting by Lonnie Zamora, which was the subject of Renegade Files episode number 12, which is a very popular episode, so check that one out if you haven't listened to it, and share it with a friend who's into UFO stories if you have by simply sending them our website, which is therenegadefiles.com, and the link for that is in the show notes. Thank you. So J. Allen Hynek was the chief scientist for U.S. Air Force projects Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, each of them focused on investigating the UFO phenomenon. To determine exactly where the Allagash 4 incident lies in relation to other UFO events, let's look at the tiers outlined by J. Allen Hynek in 1972 and still considered the standard for UFO reporting today. It should be noted that further categories have been suggested and added to his original list, and we'll talk about a few of those as well. The first tier is nocturnal lights, which are lights in the night sky that are formed in such a way as to rule out natural sources such as stars, comets, or atmospheric effects, as well as man-made objects like planes or satellites. The second is daylight disks or other objects seen in the daytime sky that defy the shape and maneuverability of traditional or known experimental aircraft. The next is radar visual sightings, where objects are seen by visual observers and confirmed by radar operators. The Japan Air Flight 1628 UFO encounter, which we explored in Renegade Files episode number 4, was a radar visual sighting. And then we have the levels of the close encounters. A close encounter of the first kind is when an object is seen within 500 feet of the observer. Close encounters of the second kind, when objects leave physical evidence behind, or the observer has physical effects associated with the encounter. And close encounters of the third kind, when an unidentified non-human entity is seen within or in association with an unidentified flying object. Close Encounters of the Third Kind marks the end of Hynek's original scale. The further levels of Close Encounters have been added by other UFO researchers over the years since Hynek's 1972 list. The first of these is a Close Encounter of the Fourth Kind, when alien beings physically interface with humans, such as in an abduction scenario. And Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, when aliens and earthlings communicate during a sighting, And it seems to me like these last two aren't in order if the scale represents an escalation of experience, but I guess the guys that came up with the fourth level got carried away in high spirits and skipped the communication part to go straight to abduction. So as we will see, the Allagash 4 experience has come to be categorized as a close encounter of the fourth kind, an incident where four men claim to have been abducted into a UFO, experienced a loss of time, and have all stuck to the same story for the majority of the time between today 
and when the event occurred in 1976. And on the subject of a loss of time, we come to the first of a few aspects of this case that call into question the face value of the story as a whole. While this event happened in August 1976, it was never reported to any researcher or formal organization until 12 years later in May of 1988. Jim Wiener's doctor suggested he attend a UFO lecture being given by author and researcher Ray Fowler and relay the story to him. It seems that at some point years after the event, Jim Wiener suffered a head injury which caused temporolimbic epilepsy. In treatment, his doctor asked him about any unusual experiences that may be causing some of the symptoms. Jim described the UFO encounter and the missing time sensations he and his friends had. He also told the doctor that all of them had been having strange and similar dreams ever since. These dreams included waking at night to see strange creatures watching them in silence. So the doctor referred, in a sense, Jim Wiener to Ray Fowler. Now it can be said that the fact that the Allagash 4 spoke to no one about this outside of close family or friends for so long speaks to the credibility of their story. They weren't seeking attention or fame. At the same time, what we discover is that the bulk of the abduction details come from hypnosis sessions where the men recall being on the craft, being examined and tested, and feeling helpless and violated. So while waiting for 12 years before speaking about the event can be seen as validating the tale in a certain sense, a 12-year gap followed by dramatic hypnosis stories can also be seen as discrediting it, at least the abduction component of the event. The entirety of the abduction story comes to us from the aforementioned Ray Fowler. By extension, it's also how we know most of what we do know about the experience as a whole. After Fowler's UFO lecture where he met Jim Wiener, he interviewed the other witnesses, conducted detailed character reference checks on the men, and confirmed that their story was relayed to a forest ranger by finding that man and hearing his testimony. Fowler also administered both psychological profile tests and polygraph tests to the men. Then he organized 12 hypnosis sessions conducted with the Allagash 4 between 1989 and 1990. Before these sessions, the men's recollection of the experience consisted of seeing the object from the canoe, paddling toward their still 10-foot-high signal fire, being engulfed in the blue beam, then finding themselves back on the shore with the just-towering bonfire suddenly burned down to ashes and coals. They had a shared experience of the sighting, the beam encounter, and the apparent missing time. Then, 12 years later, during 12 hypnosis sessions, they recalled being abducted into the UFO, examined in a laboratory setting, and have since had nightmares and visions of the aliens and the experience as a whole. All of this is recounted in the book written by Fowler. At this point, I should mention that it could also be argued that since their abduction memories, however consistent with each other, have come to us exclusively through hypnosis, that the entire Allagash 4 incident should be classified as a close encounter of the first kind, that is, an object seen within 500 feet of an observer. But that's just my opinion. Either way, the following is a combination of quotes and my own paraphrasing from Fowler's book on the case entitled The Allagash Abductions, published in 1993. 
As a side note, the book is written by Fowler in the first person perspective, so when it says I did this or I did that, that's referring to Fowler himself. So from the book, in January of 1989, I initiated a formal investigation with MUFON investigator and CE34 specialist David Webb, a solar physicist, and with MUFON consultant Anthony Constantino, a professional hypnotist. It was conducted in a careful and meticulous manner over a period of 24 months. It was obvious to us that the period of missing time had to be sandwiched between sighting the object and reaching the shore. The beam of light hitting the canoe seemed to be the dividing point between memory and amnesia. During the first of a long series of hypnosis sessions, it was decided to concentrate on this segment of the terrifying encounter. Under hypnosis, all four witnesses relived detailed and traumatic UFO abduction experiences during the period of missing time. All were transferred from their canoe into the UFO by the hollow tube-like beam of light. On board, they encountered strange humanoid creatures that exerted some kind of mind control over them so that they could not resist their demands. All were made to undress and sit on a plastic-like bench in an area illuminated by diffuse white light. After looking at their eyes and in their mouths with a pencil-sized rod with a light on its tip, the aliens placed them in a harness and flexed to their arms and legs. Then, one by one, they were made to lie on a table where each was examined by a number of strange handheld and larger machine-like instruments that were lowered over their bodies. During this segment of the examination, the alien entities removed, let's just say, numerous bodily fluids, and we'll leave it at that. After the examinations, the abductees were made to dress and enter another room which had a round portal in one of its walls. They were lined up and made to walk into the portal. Strange sensations surged through their bodies as they found themselves floating down the hollow beam of light. It was at this point that the men found themselves back on the camp shore. As the hypnosis sessions continued, much detail was recovered about their onboard experience. Also, it was discovered that the twins had had bedtime visitations by alien creatures and abduction experiences since early childhood. These experiences were relived in vivid detail under hypnosis. During the course of the investigation, an extraordinary event occurred. Jack and his wife Mary were abducted from their remote mountain home in Townsend, Vermont. During the night of May 20th, 1988, Jack and his wife were sleeping. Jack was awakened by the dog, went to let it out, saw a huge UFO with the same blue beam of light coming toward his house. He ran into the bedroom to wake his wife, recalled the entire abduction of both of them under hypnosis, and had some burn marks on his feet that he said were from the incident. His wife only recalls having a dream of a deer being inside their bedroom, but never responded to hypnosis and has no memory of this joint abduction. In summation, this UFO abduction case is unique in a number of ways. It involved four credible persons who all consciously shared the same close encounter with a UFO in 1976 during a canoe trip along the Allagash Waterway in northern Maine. All percipients experienced missing time and relived traumatic complementary UFO abduction experiences under hypnosis. Two of the abductees are identical twins which was of great interest to their alien abductors. 
our inquiry revealed that each of the witnesses exhibited the typical benchmarks characteristic of other abductees. In addition, all witnesses were subjected to detailed interrogations, rigorous character reference checks, 12 recorded and transcribed hypnotic regression sessions, and a battery of psychological profile tests. We also examined a number of alternate theories advanced to explain UFO abductions, such as hoaxes, fantasy-prone personalities, psychoses, birth trauma memories, and archetypical images from the collective unconscious. Each of these theories was critiqued and eliminated in the light of the evidence collected during our investigation. The investigation concluded that the moral character of the witnesses, the graphic reliving of their experiences under hypnosis, and the extraordinary correlations between their experiences and that of others provided overwhelming evidence that their experiences were objective in nature. Such evidence combined with typical physical effects on the witnesses' bodies prompted me to evaluate this case in the Great Significance category. Ray E. Fowler, The Allagash Abductions, Undeniable Evidence of Alien Intervention. So, a side note is that one of the men, Chuck Rack, has said that the sighting was real, but the abduction part was only later invented while under hypnosis. The other three men contend that Rack is simply tired of talking about the episode, so he has decided to say it didn't happen. This explanation could go either way. I mean, I can understand Chuck being tired of talking about it, but then again, going around saying it never happened is talking about it. Actually, there's more drama to Chuck Rack retracting his story, and I'll get deeper into that in the summary, so stay tuned. Part 3. Ray Fowler This third segment is a short look into who Ray Fowler is and some of the things he has done before and after his Allagash 4 investigation, so that we might get the full picture here. While researching Ray Fowler's background, I found a great interview conducted by Brent Rains at MysteriousAmerica.com, and I'm just going to read from the introduction here because it summarizes Ray's history as good as can be written. The interview centers on the connection between the overall UFO experience and Jungian synchronicity, and it's pretty heavy, but it is good. I'll link to the interview in the show notes for you. So anyway, from the intro... Raymond E. Fowler was born in Salem, Massachusetts and received his B.A. degree, magna cum laude, from Gordon College of Liberal Arts. His career included a tour with the U.S. Air Force Security Service and 25 years with GTE Government Systems as a senior planner for the Minuteman Intercontinental Missile Program. In addition, Mr. Fowler has directed his own planetarium and observatory and teaches courses on astronomy, cosmology, and UFOs. He is internationally known as a highly competent investigator of UFOs and the paranormal and the author of 10 books at the time of the interview. So that's the end of the biographical intro, and I think it's a very good one, sort of short and sweet. Ray Fowler was also on the MUFON board of directors as the director of investigations, and he wrote their third edition of the MUFON Field Investigators Manual in 1983. He was the scientific associate for the Center for UFO Studies. Fowler also served as an associate member and eventual chairman of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And as mentioned in his bio, Ray Fowler also built the Woodside Planetarium and Observatory in Wenham, Massachusetts, and presented shows there from 1970 until 2001. 
He is the author of several books, including UFOs, Interplanetary Visitors in 1974, The Andreessen Affair, 1979, Casebook of a UFO Investigator, 1981, The McCalcedek Connection, 1981, The Andreessen Affair, Phase 2, 1982, The Watchers, 1990, The Allagash Abductions in 1993, UFO Testament, Anatomy of an Abductee in 2002, and UFOs, The Ultimate Abduction in 2020. The Allagash Abductions book is based on a 10-volume, 702-page report generated over a two-year investigation. The text of this report was also optioned by Time Life to be used as the foundation of a television show about UFOs. From all of this, Ray Fowler and only Ray Fowler earns money. But that doesn't mean it's any less credible. Of course he makes money from the books and the TV options, that's what writers do. Later in life, Fowler claimed to have been abducted by aliens himself and he detailed the experiences in his autobiographical book UFO Testament, Anatomy of an Abductee. This book was written in 2002 when Fowler was 69 years old. The book is equal parts stories of other abductions and Fowler's entire life story. It seems after a lifetime of studying UFOs and UFO abductions that at some point Fowler realized that he had also been abducted by aliens over his lifetime. This revelation and others caused a falling out between Fowler and his family and it is said that he can't visit his grandchildren, his children being fundamentalist Christians who believe that Fowler's alien ideas are coming from a demonic possession. So grandpa is crazy. He thinks he sees aliens. There's only one sad explanation. Demons. My summary. So, right away, this is one of my favorite UFO stories. The original experience of the four men seeing the UFO, paddling to escape the blue beam, then their shared time loss back on the shore, that's enough. That alone is an astounding UFO experience. The fact that four men reported exactly that for decades makes the Allagash 4 UFO encounter one of the most incredible UFO events to take place in our time. So all of the men have the same story and have stuck to it for years with the exception of one of them, Chuck Rack, who has changed his tune but that came late in the game and the others claim he has issues of anger and a bad temper and that he was actually the one trying the hardest to make money off the deal and when the other three men wouldn't go along with his plans, he started to say they were lying. This is of course only one side of that story, but the other three men say they no longer have any contact with Rack because he is, in their words, a loose cannon. I think in this instance, the initial reports ring the most true. Another thing that makes this story believable is the fact that it was confirmed that the men reported the sighting to the first park ranger they saw. Also, that prior to reaching their final deep woods destination, they camped at a spot where other campers were, and on that night, both the four men and the other campers saw an object in the sky. Everyone saw it, but no one seemed very interested, except for Jim Weiner, who looked at it through binoculars. 
When he and his friends later saw the UFO from the canoe, he immediately recognized it as being the same, or at least similar to, the object he and the other campers had seen just a few days before that. As for the abduction part of the story and Ray Fowler's involvement, I will say it makes it interesting. Of note is the fact that, as in the group's conscious experience with the craft, all four men have abduction recollections under hypnosis that are either the same or that line up with each other. Like one guy remembers being examined and another guy remembers watching that guy being examined, so stuff like that. Hypnosis is a woolly subject. You are relaxing someone to such a deep point that they are one notch away from being fully asleep, but still conscious enough to respond to conversation and interact physically. So in that state, they have access to the subconscious mind, which can recall details of memory the conscious mind either blocks out or fails to notice. The problem is the way these memories are then conveyed to the hypnotist or person asking the question is extremely vulnerable to both suggestive leading and interpretation. Victims of physical abuse who have recalled who the abuser was and what they did have later discovered that they were retelling a first-person version of a TV after-school special they had watched 20 years ago. This happens because the subconscious mind takes in everything it sees and forgets nothing. People who recount past life experiences while under hypnosis in their past lives were always an Egyptian pharaoh, a glamorous duchess, or Davy Crockett. No one seems to ever have been a Victorian-era homeless street urchin, or a starving 4th-century French peasant. According to an article from Thomas Jefferson University's Jefferson Journal of Psychiatry by Phyllis E. Amabile, J.D., M.D., and Thomas H. Job, M.D., quote, both experimental and clinical findings point to the conclusion that hypnotic recall cannot be considered factually accurate. And that, quote, eyewitnesses questioned under hypnosis are more likely to answer leading questions incorrectly than those questioned in the waking state. And a final quote from that same report. Hypnosis does modestly increase the amount of material available to memory. At the same time, it increases the tendency to fill in portions which the subject cannot remember in an effort to comply with suggestions. This is not to say that hypnosis and the resulting recovered memories or admissions are always false. Many crimes have been solved through evidence, later confirmed, that was obtained through hypnosis. As you may know, our previous episode, episode 15, The Bobby Kennedy Assassination, dives heavily into this subject, and part of it includes the solving of the Boston Strangler case using hypnosis. This is just a personal educated guess, but I would say that hypnosis as a method to recover suppressed memories is probably just as accurate as asking someone to tell you something they remember from their conscious experience. Both can be deadly accurate, both can be fully incorrect, and I'd bet that in most instances the information is somewhere in the middle. As for the tale of the Allagash 4, I believe they saw a UFO by any definition. I think the consistency across the four men's initial versions of the event 
plus the fact that the other campers also saw a UFO two days before in the same general area, all combined to make this story one of the most credible in the annals of modern American UFOs. As for the abduction component, I guess it comes down to how much stock you put into memories revealed under hypnosis. Once again, we see each of the men's hypnosis recall is consistent with each other. They all seem to remember the same events, and they describe the same interior of the craft and large metallic-eyed beings, and all the details are the same. But then again, they are all being hypnotized by the same guy, and the resulting information is all being edited and relayed to us by Ray Fowler, who has a predisposition for believing UFO stories and is a specialist at interviewing abduction victims. And then, Fowler, when he is 69 years old, remembers that he too has been abducted at various times over his life. In the end, I believe the consciously experienced UFO event described by the Allagash 4. I believe they saw something phenomenal, and I believe their description of missing time adds a paranormal facet to the story that discounts government experimental aircraft or other atmospheric explanations. As for the memories of abduction they discovered under hypnosis, those are their private memories and it's up to them to believe them or not, not me. I do believe that they have chosen to share those memories with the world because they have genuine concerns for anyone else who has experienced a UFO in an intimate way that they are now trying to cope with. As do I. So keep looking up. But maybe leave the flashlight signaling out of it. Thank you once again for traveling with me into the unknown wilderness of our strange and wonderful world. You made it back to civilization at the end of this episode. You have learned about the Allagash 4 UFO encounter. Now is the best time to jump on the Renegade Files Patreon page from the show notes for even deeper content, some of it free, and it's easy and free to check it out. Renegade Files Agency members on Patreon get tons of extra content, can interact with me and other RFA agents, and for just a few bucks help crowdfund these reports so you can always listen to Renegade Files without ads. Visit the Patreon page in the show notes and I'll see you in there. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, saying thank you for listening, and I'm already looking forward to the next episode when we can do it again. Stay wild, freedom child.